The Ardennes, December 1944. The Nazi forces are making their last offensive in Europe, a campaign which will come to be called the Battle of the Bulge. But there's a third side to this battle, an unknown and ancient force which seems to pay little heed to the laws of nature. Where do the bodies of the dead disappear to? What is the true nature of the military experiments conducted by both sides? The doctor, Sam and Fitz, must seek out the truth in a battlefield where no one and nothing is quite what they seem. Welcome back to the Secret Library of St John the Beheaded for this episode of We're All Stories in the End, a podcast that looks at the Virgin New Adventures, the BBC Books Eighth Doctor Adventures, and, you know, everyone else's adventures too. On this episode, we're going to be talking about and reading Autumn Mist by David A. McKinty, one of the early Eighth Doctor Adventures, and let's get the party started. First up, we'll remind ourselves of the book with a quick flick through the synopsis of the novel. In the kitchen of the TARDIS, Fitz is worrying about the fact that he and Sam had sex in San Francisco, and he's not entirely sure she's okay about this. The TARDIS, still obsessed with Earth, arrives on a bridge in the middle of a war zone. As the trio wander about, the bridge is attacked and the TARDIS sinks into the river below. Sam is now stranded on the opposite side of the river to Fitz and the Doctor, so she wanders off in search of help, finding a small town, where she falls in with some allied forces who take her under their wing as a German patrol advances. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Fitz also come under enemy fire, but some nearby US troops retaliate. In the melee, Fitz falls into the river. Sam's group is attacked as well, but she's rescued by an American called Bearclaw. The Doctor finds himself agreeing to fly some injured US troops to nearby Bastogne. Fitz escapes the river, but finds himself in Nazi-occupied territory and poses as a German soldier under the watchful gaze of SS Captain Leitz. In Bastogne, Dr. Ray Garcia is awoken by the arrival of the Doctor and his patients, including Wisniewski, who the Doctor suspects has had his memories altered. Asking for necessary supplies, the Doctor is told to ask Colonel Lewis. Sam and Bearclaw are attacked by more Germans, and they flee into some woods. Lewis refuses to issue the Doctor with what he needs as supplies are short, and when the Time Lord leaves the office, Lewis discusses the encounter with an invisible presence. Ordered to conduct some guard duty, Fitz observes a strange metallic tent in which is housed a prisoner of lights. He goes in for a look and finds himself face to face with a caged creature who looks distinctly elven. In the hospital... Garcia and the Doctor discover that a critically wounded patient has somehow vanished. Out in the woods, some German soldiers corner Sam and shoot her at point-blank range. Lights collars Fitz and tells him he's studying light and dark elves. As Bearclaw watches in horror, Sam's corpse is spirited away by a swirling cloud of tiny lights. He travels to a nearby town, still in shock, and finds a field hospital, where he tells the Doctor all about the death of Sam Jones. The Doctor marches out of the hospital numb with grief and meets a sexy elf queen who transports him to her magic realm 
and promptly takes all her clothes off. Bertlaw, Garcia, Wisniewski and the Doctor investigate strange goings-on in the hospital, while Fitz decides to escape the German territory. Sam awakes and finds her body floating along a strange kind of tunnel. The German camp is attacked and smothered by a strange mist. Sam comes to her senses in a sort of operating theatre where she sees patches of fine bone-white skin over the places where the bullets entered her body. In the village, Fitz escapes with the prisoner, a fact which is immediately passed on to lights. Exploring her surroundings, Sam emerges into the same magical realm the Doctor has recently visited and makes a new friend, the elfman Galastel. In a nice callback to alien bodies, she briefly assumes she is in fact in Miklan, home of the Celestes. Sam observes in the water of a nearby lake that tiny tanks are visible through the water, and Fitz sees his elven companion vanish in another light storm. The Doctor and his team, Visnevsky, Bearclaw and Garcia, swap notes about the numerous reports from soldiers in the area who all claim to have seen figures from their various native folklores. Explaining that his city is dying because of the war on Earth, Galastel the fairy takes Sam to a banquet with the Queen of the Sheed, who knows the Doctor as the Evergreen Man. Following a bombing raid on their position, the Doctor once again meets the Queen of the Sheed. Fitz falls in with Allied troops and passes himself off as James Bond. Titania, Queen of the Sheed, talks about an ancient war between her people and the humans, a war that was ended by a treaty the humans no longer observe. The Doctor tries to explain about the nature of mortality, while Titania's jealous consort Oberon agitates for fresh war between the two races, and instructs his human subject Lewis to arrange the Doctor's death. Sam materialises in front of the Doctor and his entourage, while Lewis and Lights secretly plot the next battle in the war, as if they are just playing a little game. Lights and his troops kill a she and the horrified German finally gets a good clear look at one, free from the cloaking influence the creatures exert. The Doctor and Sam catch up. He likens her rebirth to regeneration, a topic they discuss, until Sam asks the Doctor if he might one day regenerate into a female body, about which he is a little coy. Discovering Lewis is collaborating with lights, the Doctor demands help to recover the TARDIS in exchange for his silence. Sam and Galastel identify a rift which has brought the world of the Shi into contact with that of the humans, a rift Sam believes to have been caused by the beast from a previous EDA, the Taint. The Doctor leads his band of brothers to the village of Noville, where at great length and with no shortage of peril, they liberate a Nazi tank with which they hope to recover the TARDIS. Rescuing the Type 40, the Doctor leaves his team to prevent the two advancing tank divisions from reaching the area of the rift and doing battle. He takes Sam with him, which is odd because she is also alongside the soldiers he leaves behind. As the desperate heroes attempt to divert the Allied troops, Lewis shoots Wisniewski. Lights is run over by a tank in the skirmish, while the Doctor, Sam and Fitz arrive at the Philadelphia Experiment, a US Navy experiment into invisibility, where they hope to steal a warship, which contains enough ferrous metal to seal the rift, somehow. The Sam reveals himself to be a disguised Oberon. The Doctor traps him on the ship, Iron being able to stop she magic, and Oberon is left to die in an explosion. After the tank battle, Garcia is fatally stabbed by a young dying German lad. Titania and the Sheed are saved as the Doctor seals the rift using the warship. Somehow. 
Back in the TARDIS, Sam tells the Doctor she's had enough and she's ready to leave. So what I'm going to do now, of course, is fire up the space-time visualiser and see if we can find someone on the other end of it who fancies chatting about Autumn Mist. If we're really lucky, and I mean really lucky this time, we might even get the author of the book himself. Come on, you bloody thing. <laughs> like a, yeah, like a sprinkler system. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, let me start with the question that people usually finish these kind of interviews with. Um, <laughs> what are you up to these days? Um, uh, loads of stuff. I mean, I do loads of reviews and things. I always have done um, sort of do reviews of, uh, well, for sci-fi bulletin, I do soundtrack reviews at the moment. But I also do reviews elsewhere of um, Hong Kong movies and uh, spaghetti westerns and classic, uh, uh, classic sort of silent films and stuff like that, which again I've done in the past. You go back to uh, the 90s and early 90s and I was doing reviews for what was then Neo uh, I think that folded some years ago but uh, so I still do those kind of things um, and there's a sort of other books that I'm working on I've got a book for Telos that I'm trying to get finished which is about the uh, history of BBC ghost stories uh, and uh, so on and so forth I actually found uh, Certainly, since since the um, you know the days of the past Doctor books and the Eighth Doctor books, and all those, I found actually um, uh, I've become kind of happier doing non-fiction. Just it, it just I think suits me better. Maybe uh, I love the research stuff, as people may have noticed. And also away from writing, I'm a, a fence, a historical fence, and instructor. So that's a that's a cool thing to be. That's uh, that you're you're too talented for one person, clearly. <laughs> unless unless I don't know you're not very yeah, good that's, at fencing. That, that's that's why I'm on my fourth lifetime. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, literally, I've actually died and been revived or resuscitated uh, three times. Blimey. Yeah. Well, that's um, that's two or three better than me. Um. <laughs> so, um, growing up, who were your favourite authors? Oh. Yeah, definitely Alistair McLean. When I mean, it depends what age you're talking about when I was, because uh, I think I grew up on like the Secret Seven and the Famous Five and stuff like that. And whichever anonymous house uh, pseudonyms wrote the sort of uh, what were they called? The 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 three investigators and those kind of things. Um, which went under the Alfred Hitchcock Presents uh, banner. Uh, but then if we're talking adult authors, even from childhood, yeah, uh, Alistair McLean, Ian Fleming, um, those those kind of people. Uh, into my teens, I started, Dean Kuntz, I always, certainly in that period, I thought I, I loved the fact that he always had... Um, 
sort of uh, more female protagonists and uh, so on than than most of the writers did. I mean, I could just go on for for ages with oh yeah, then it's you know Raymond Feist and David Eggins and <laughs> so and so and so and so and so and so. How long have you got? <laughs> Well, I mean, I, we could we could move on to question three. I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah. but I think um, when people sometimes used to ask me, um, uh, who who was, not not so much people ask, but people would always say like at, at conventions or on panels, you know, somebody would say like, oh yeah, I wanted to be the next George Orwell or Macari or Arthur C. Clarke or uh, Philip K. Dick. And Philip K. Dick's always my favourite. And I was like, I was settled for being compared to Alistair MacLean, basically. That's okay. Yeah, I think I'm just for that kind of era. So um, I've dragged you on here to talk about Autumn Mist, which you wrote years ago. (laughs) Yeah, 23 years or something, is it? Now, before I start asking you all my very in-depth, detailed, nerdy questions, can you remember any of the book? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I can can remember uh, some of it. I mean, I could go and look at the shelf and remind myself. But (laughs) I kind of... I know they, when they did the Doctor Who commentaries, I know like Peter Davison and, uh, especially will go and like watch the thing again so that he knows what to talk about and stuff like that. Whereas I'm sort of more thinking for this that, that I think probably new new fans or new readers, like it's going to be as new to them as, as it probably is to me. So <laughs> or as it probably would be to me if I went back and looked at it again. So I, I think that would could be an interesting take and also i was too busy to go and read it <laughs> that's totally fair enough i mean yeah you know, also but... i must confess i don't really like reading my own novels uh i'm okay when it's like um you know if i've done a comic i'm okay reading the comic because then other people have brought something to it the artist has brought something new to it um or you know audios and big finish and stuff it's like okay the actors and the director have brought something to it but when it's my own novels it's just kind of like i know what happens and there's <laughs> not going to be anything new yeah, if you see what i mean i do i do but um so so my my story i i kind of i read all of the new adventures as soon as they came out and yeah. I, I loved White Darkness and I loved First Frontier and I loved Sanctuary. I'd never read any of the past Doctor books. Um, and I had a very patchy relationship with the eighth Doctor books. So mm. Autumn Mist comes along, I want to say, about 20 books into the range, something like that. Yeah, I, I, I don't honestly know which no. number it is. No, I, I didn't we're, really we're all too grown up to remember that. Keep kind of that kind of thing. <laughs> So I know it came you, in the middle of a trilogy, yeah, sort of thing. But uh, did you, um, as as someone with a, a fairly extensive track record by that point, did the did the BBC Books reach out to you to write something, or did you have to sort of pitch it cold to them, even at that stage? I think at that point, I had I had pitched, I think three in. Uh, one goal, which I think was um, Mission Impractical, Wages of Sin, and um, Autumn Mist, and basically, uh, you know, to see which one they'd like or which ones they'd like best. And I think 
in the end they sort of basically said yeah we'll we'll do all of these a certain distance apart so it's just which order are they going to go in so um when i read autumn mist i was very struck by chapter one i think it's the most kind of dynamic and propulsive chapter since the dalek invasion of earth mm. and i wanted to ask if you sort of deliberately set out to make your chapter one you know kind of kind of a barnstormer or if it if it just kind of happened by accident um it was it was a fairly deliberate thing i thought well, yeah let's let's go for the sort of cold open where we're in the middle of things um i mean in fact overall for that one we'd had as far as world war Two was concerned and the new adventures he had exodus where it's all mm-hmm. about oh let's go and see the rise of the nazis and he'd had um uh, just war where it's all about uh, the uh, uh, occupation being under occupation and nobody had done the what's it like for the uh, soldier on the ground and so I kind of wanted to do that um, which is why it goes straight into that at the beginning of, of Autumn Mist uh, just to really establish yeah this is where we are we're in the field it's um it's kind of that mixture of uh, terror and frantic panic, and at least for the characters, at least I, I don't know if that carries across to the audience. <laughs> I think it does. I think it does. I mean, there was a, it was a very you know first-person shooter kind of book. Um, yeah, although ironically, that's kind of before uh, really I got much into first-person shooter games because there weren't that many at that point. There'd been uh, yeah, there'd been Return to Castle Wolfenstein. There was Doom stuff like that, GoldenEye uh, on the N64. But missed, you know, we we didn't have like uh, Call of Duty and Medal of Honor and those kind of things when this was written. Uh, as far as I'm aware, not that I remember. Yeah. Right, so you you kind of led the way there. I think um, I, th- yeah. I think it's just a a style of doing it. You know, uh, lots of people have done that kind of thing in in different books and comics and what have you, uh, and even on TV and movies. So um, very early in the book, I want to say chapter three, but don't prosecute me if I've got my facts wrong. You shoot. The companion Sam Jones at point blank range. Yeah, were you, were you not a fan? Um, it, <laughs> the the weird thing is, um, and I think one of the reasons I'm I'm not quite as yeah I'm not quite as satisfied with this particular book because at the at the time there was just so many of them they're coming out so fast it was just impossible to keep up so it's mere a case of being less familiar not that i had anything against it particularly um but that i wanted to have because of the other stuff that happens later on um with with her so it was never like a oh i want to kill her off or anything like that, <laughs> which which i have done with other companions um <laughs> It it was just a kind of right. This is this is going to have to happen at some point so that she can go through these other processes later on, uh, and let's just try and make it as as kind of shocking as possible or as surprising as possible, and hopefully making the audience go like what? <laughs> I mean, I was stunned. I mean, I I'm reading them 
out of order at the moment. And as I said, I, I didn't read all of them in the first place. So I was kind of thinking, is is that it? Is that is that how Sam goes? I was I was beside myself, man. I just wanted to ask about how you sort of put the book together. It feels really sort of expertly plotted. Do you sort of tinker with the plot until you've got a you know a, a really good base to work from or do you begin with kind of a scene or a character in mind and um, work backward from that sometimes i'll begin with okay i want to do a, a book with this particular character or, or, or involve more heavily this particular character or i want to have this particular scene in it somewhere but really now it's all about the plots and i, I know i've seen uh you know reviews and uh articles back in the day uh where they say that was that was one of my strengths um uh, and i hope that's accurate was having like solid plot because i'd always start off i'd, I'd have like a one page outline and develop that up to maybe uh six eight even 10 or 12 page outlines or bullet pointed and stuff and i will stick to that and and any changing of stuff and swapping stuff around they'll try and date at, at that outline stage it, it's always about, in that case, the plot uh, and, and making sure that goes. Because, of course, you know what they say, uh, plot is is uh, what, uh, what happens and the story is how the characters interact with what happens or how they react to, to what happens. So it, there has to be these... I mean, other people... Um, both in Doctor Who novels and everywhere else in the writing world, will will sometimes, you know, be able to, to do about this, just all about, okay, I'm going to start with this character and just go through what happens to him or her, uh, just just um, what do they encounter as they're wandering along and make it work lyrically and beautifully. But that's not my strength. My strength's in plotting and uh, snappy dialogue, basically. Um so I think the trick is to try and play to your strengths rather than you want to you want to try and uh, push the boundaries a little bit uh, and and try and increase your range. But at the same time, you want to try and avoid just going into a completely different zone altogether and, and getting it horribly wrong, which sometimes happens anyway. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I was I was going to say that your your dialogue really did sort of stand out for being at times sort of genuinely funny and, and really sort of, you know, really good stuff. And in a way it, it did feel like a, a throwback to what I've, what I seem to have written down as better times by which I suppose, I mean, the Virgin new adventures era. Um, did you sort of take extra care with the dialogue or, or, or did that sort of come fairly naturally because of the characters? Um, it's it's a a mixture of both. Yeah, if you've created a character, okay, we've well got these, uh, you know, you've got an American GI or whatever, you've got the modern London companion or you've got whichever other type of character, you know what sort of idioms they're going to use and what sort of tone of um, communication and, and uh, personality quirks they're going to use. And then it becomes, I need to sort of cast a voice in my head. Mm. And it can be like, you know, yeah, it can be an actor. It can be just a voice of her passing me by in the street. It, just so long as it's a distinctive voice that 
I can hear saying the dialogue or, or playing the dialogue, and then I can tell whether it, whether it will sound good or not, whether it will work for that line or for that character or for that scene. Um, and I always have had to do that. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no right or wrong answers. Uh, I, I don't think or, or way to to do it. Everybody has their own style. It's, it's what works for you is what works. Yeah. And that's what works for me. I mean, I know that there, you know, have to have that, that long plot outline and have to have the bullet points and all the rest. Of it. And there's other people who will just go, right, I'm just going to start with the Stephen King approach. You know, I'm just going to start with this, this person in the room and suddenly <laughs> X or Y happens and I'm just going to go with it, you know, and the plot will turn up on its own or the story and plot will turn up on their own. Um, and yeah, I'd love to be able to do that, but I can't. Uh, I, I more have to be the sort of the Agatha Christie type, you know, the sort of like <laughs> these damn plots bubbling in the head all the way. Through. She she said that most famously, the plots, these damn plots. Um. <laughs> well, I don't think many writers really get the opportunity to write a book sort of whimsically from a from an opening scene unless they are someone like Stephen King who's got you know 50 years of uh of strong sales and people have yeah, like he's, always, he's always done that and of course you look back at, at other other writers from other eras and you can kind of tell you know which of them have, have got like okay I've got a half page outline I'm just going to run with it yeah. um and as I say it's it's not wrong uh doing it that way doing it this way is not wrong it's what works for you works for you what plays to your strengths plays to your strengths so how did you find writing for the um sort of famously nebulous eighth doctor yeah that was that was tricky because we only have like about 40 minutes of screen time Mm. uh, for him at the time Uh, i think a big finish actually started I don't think they had when I wrote this because obviously it came out in 99 so I'll have written it in 98 when did Big Finish start was it 97 or 99? I think they started doing McGann in about 2001 alright so it's well before that Yeah. I think I just kind of I mean the Doctor is always the Doctor and then it's whittle away the the bits that are obviously not this doctor um so it's like yeah we we know he's not Troughton or Pertwee or whatever i think it's just try to avoid doing the bits that are that are too obviously um mm. other doctors and then try to bring in what we saw of him in the tv movie uh and that's all good day at the time. So I'm, I've no idea sort of how, especially because, of course, then Big Finish have done it so so well. Um, and I've done him uh, so well that, that his incarnation of the Doctor is now probably very different than what I imagined it would be, or what any of us um, uh, doing the Eighth Doctor books at that stage imagined. Uh, that he'd end up actually being when McGann got to play the part fully. Uh, 
so it was just yeah that that's all you could do um i'm just before i read out the next question i just want to double check my pronunciation so the the um sort of fairy like race in the book is that pronounced sheed yeah it'd just be she she right did the doctor have it off with the queen of the she <laughs> um this is one of these things where not having been able to have read all the other ones or the other eight doctors as i was writing at the time um meant a sort of held back for saying things or putting in things that really I thought I should have, but I was like, oh, I don't know, would I get away with it? And so the idea is, yes, he absolutely does. Um, and hopefully it would be shocking that the Doctor does this. And then, of course, after it came out, it's like, oh, yeah, but like three books previously, shagged some other alien or whatever in some other book. And it's like, oh, right, so I've actually... Okay, I, 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 I've, I've just been too tame, not daring enough, but yeah, well, you know, it's funny you can't help that. That's <laughs> good, because now we all think of sort of David Tennant's Doctor as the sort of notorious shagger, but um, no, in many no. ways, I, I like the books, idea that McGann got there the first. books, uh, the eighth Doctor was in there first. <laughs> and I think still has a higher score as well. <laughs> Well, we can always add to add to it if we need to push him over the edge. Um, there's a very interesting exchange between the Doctor and Sam at some point in the book where she asks the Doctor if he could regenerate into a woman one day. So on that subject, I just oh. wanted to ask, are you enjoying the Jodie era of Doctor Who? Um, I'm enjoying Jodie. I think Jodie's great. Mm. That's, that's not quite the question you asked. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I know the answer, and I think we're on the same I page. Am I enjoying the Jodie era? I'm, in, I'm enjoying some of it. I'm enjoying yeah. some elements of it. Um, I'm enjoying Jodie herself. I really uh, loved the um, Yaz and Graham team. Uh, I think the cinematography has improved a huge amount. You know, the production values have improved a huge amount. Um I think the, the the woman who fell to earth was probably one of the best jumping on jumping on points for new viewers as well. Uh, easily Chibnall's best script. Overall, yeah, I've been enjoying it in a lot of ways. I think the episode's written by other people, apart from uh, Woman Who Fell to Earth, which is brilliant. I have no complaints about that. Uh, have all been better than the the Chibnall episodes. And also, of course, it's annoying that, that we've had so f- few. Yeah. That's the biggest downer is the fact that there's been so few and so stretched out. Something else that uh, impressed me about Autumn Mist is the way that I feel it, it kind of predicted the sort of cultural zeitgeist for the next five or six years. It's a sort of perfect um, companion piece to the, the novel Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell. Um and it also, I feel, inspired Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. Oh, I doubt that. No, that's more <laughs> inspired by. There's a previous Italian film called Inglorious Bastards, uh, which is a, which is a fun movie. It's a sort of really cheap, low budget, sort of dirty dozen type thing. Um, so that, that's that's much more uh, 
Tarantino's inspiration, I think. I'm not going to claim that one. Well, Um, I'm sure he reads Doctor Who books habitually. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm sure he does. He's a a secret fan. (laughs) I mean, he he definitely read uh, Reservoir Davros. I think that inspired him at some point. But uh, yeah. Um, so did you read many of the New Adventures and the Eighth Doctor books or, or really just your own? I read as many as, a, as many as I could. But, you know, one has a, had then and still has now uh, a budget limitation. So mm. uh, and also a time limitation, because it's like, well, if I take the time and, and was able to read absolutely all of them, I wouldn't have time to write the thing. Yeah. Um, that's where you're kind of almost relying on on the editorial team to sort of say, oh, uh, by the way, when when you get to this bit in your outline, bear in mind we've got another book coming up where, you know, something similar happens. Uh, that happened, I think, we um, first frontier where it's like uh, originally the uh, the uh, nuclear bomb in first frontier was going to get zipped back to uh, Tunguska of course and then, oh lovely and then uh, was it Justin I think that was in charge at the time uh, no it wasn't Justin it must have been Steve Cole wasn't it uh, said oh yeah we've already got like two other books coming out where we did Tunguska and I went oh right okay <laughs> something else <laughs> did you get a lot of kind of authorial notes on, on the continuity and, and what's coming up and, and this that and the other or did they pretty much leave you to your own devices um i think it depended on how continuity heavy the thing was how how busy they were and who was editor at the time uh i mean i remember i remember being kind of um disappointed shall we say that uh that they they didn't mention that, um, or they they didn't make sort of uh, allowance for uh, what was um, Paul Cornell's book Storm Over of Valium? Is that what yeah, it's yeah, called? Yeah. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. Which also has has like elves or she or whatever, and, and I'm sure that only came out like three months later or something. You think, wait a minute, they must both have been in the pipeline at the same time. You think somebody could have said something so that they could. <laughs> you know, uh, not have completely the opposite things going on, um, and you know at least uh, smooth them together. But but um, uh, you know, like I say, it depends who's working on which book in in the editorial team, and I have no idea uh, at the time who was who was doing that and how busy they are and. You know, how far is it too late? To, <laughs> you know, um, so sometimes you didn't, uh, like in the case with the Tunguska thing, and, and sometimes you didn't, and you just had to sort of accept that, well, this is a series where Atlantis gets created and destroyed three different times by, by three different uh, uh, groups. So what the hell? <laughs> yeah, it's it seems fair enough, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so my last question, imagine your uh, your entire canon, all your mm-hmm. Doctor Who books are going to be wiped out of existence and you can save one that will live on forever. Which book are you most proud of? Which book are you saving? 
which book I would be saving probably would be the 11th Tiger. Um, I'm most proud of that. I mean, there's an element that sort of says, well, actually, wouldn't you want to save, say, White Darkness because it's the first one and therefore mm. possibly more <laughs> historically important <laughs> to, to the tiniest possible set of people. Um, but now I think if it's gone with um, uh, best or favourite or, or most proud of, it would be 11th Tiger. Yeah. What is it about that one that, that stands out to you? I think... I'd, I think I really got the, the the balance right on all sorts of things, um, both on, on getting it culturally appropriate and getting it uh, continuity-wise appropriate and, and doing things that you don't expect the first Doctor to do, but but when you go and watch the episodes on either side of it, you, you, you can see, yeah, absolutely, he, mm. he could and would. Um, and of course the the dialogue and the plot line and all that stuff. Um, and and I suppose in, in closing, when you when you look back on on the the Virgin era and the the BBC Eighth Doctor era, do you have a, a kind of a, a preference, or was it much of a muchness as a you know contributing author? Ah, uh, hmm. I'm not sure I have a preference because, you know, most of the, uh, you know, there was a, a, a very much a carryover of, if not the actual editors, at least the, the editorial um, uh, ethos mm. uh, and procedures. Uh, so I know they said when they originally launched the past Doctor books and, and Eighth Doctor books that, oh, we're going to be completely separate and stuff. And I think that lasted to bit as far as the second book. And then they're <laughs> like, now, sorry, it will just continue. <laughs> We've already built up this thing. Let's keep going. Um, uh, I, think, I think the Virgin books had better covers. Yes. Um, uh, you know, I love the Virgin covers uh, a lot more, I think. So that possibly gives them the edge. Enormous thanks to David for joining us to talk about the novel. And now let's try and get someone else's voice on this podcast to add their opinion of Autumn Mist. Over to you, Kevin. We attribute the success save mankind from a... Thanks for joining us on this episode. You got walls and a roof? Hi. So this month, I'm going to leave it to others to discuss the merits, or otherwise, of the plot. Instead, I thought I'd briefly talk about three things from the book that all resonated with other interests. Interests that, much like Doctor Who, started when I was a younger man. Firstly, there's the World War II setting. When I was a teenager at school, history quickly became my favourite subject. In fact, it's the only one I got an A grade in when it came to my exams. Partially this was because I had a very good teacher who lived through many of the major events as a young man, but he was also incredibly good at making the stories just come alive. But the other part is because I just found everything just so damn interesting. Although we covered the whole of World War II, it was the time leading up to and following D-Day in 1944 that we spent a lot of time on. So when the Doctor and his companions are dropped in the middle of the Battle of the Bulge, a key conflict near the end of the war, I was on board straight away. In fact, the title of the book, Autumn Mist, refers to one of the plans for the German offensive in the Belgian region. It was a dark and desperate time with a horrific loss of life. 
And I feel that the harshness of the battle, the freezing temperatures, the constant shelling, the blurring of the German and Allied lines and the toll it took on the troops on both sides are well represented in the novel. Secondly, there's the fairies, the she and the opposing monarchs, Titania and Oberon. I've talked in a previous episode about my teenage love for all things weird and unexplained, and I guess fairies fit into that. But this was also the period where I first learned about Shakespeare and saw my first production of one of his plays, an amateur performance of, you've guessed it, A Midsummer Night's Dream. I may not have understood half of what was going on, but the setting and the language absolutely entranced me. I sought out more and I grew to love his plays, something which only deepened over the intervening decades. Now, the fairies in Midsummer Night's Dream are not quite the same and may not implicitly serve the forces of chaos and order as they do in the book, but there are parallels, and I'm just glad to see these characters appear in Doctor Who. A quick historical aside, James I's eldest son, Prince Henry, who died very young and never got to become king, once appeared in a Ben Jonson play as Oberon, and he wanted to arrive on stage on horseback, but his father deemed it too dangerous. So they argued back and forth, and finally they settled on a chariot, pulled by two baby polar bears. Right, last we come to science, specifically the search for the theory of everything. Yep, I'm a science geek too. In the book, it's explained that the she can perceive all 11 dimensions, not just the four we humans experience. In the real world, physicists have long been searching for a way to join general relativity, the science of the very large, with quantum mechanics, the science of the very small. One solution to this is known as M-theory, which postulates the existence of 10 physical dimensions and one time dimension, matching the 11th of the book. Is it impossible to prove? Probably, certainly right now. And I only probably understand 10% of it. But supersymmetry, bosons, membranes, the black hole information paradox, this branch of theoretical physics absolutely fascinates me. Though perhaps the thing that makes the SF and fantasy fan in me smile the most, and paralleling a famous Arthur C. Clarke quote, a physicist once suggested that in the absence of a real understanding of the true meaning and structure of M-theory, perhaps the M could stand for, wait for it, magic. That's it for me. See you next month. Ah yes, the black hole information paradox. We dated briefly. Now, I can't hang around, actually, for too much longer because the library's owner, Irving Braxitel, is due in to audit the books and do some dusting. So I'm going to head back to 1950s London for one of the absolute classics of the Virgin New Adventures series, Bad Therapy by Matthew Jones. I look forward to discussing that with everyone next month. We're All Stories in the End was written and produced by Ian Martin with lots of help from Liam and Kevin. And special thanks to our guest star this month, David A. McKinty. And if you'd like to get involved with the show, then just tweet me at Broad and Deep.